Good morning. It's a blessing to be here. It's always a blessing to worship together, and I'm grateful to be able to bring the word this morning. Would you open in your copy of God's word to Mark chapter 7? We'll be reading verses 24 through 30, and it's on page 846 in the Blue Bible in the Purack, or I believe it's printed in your bulletin. Mark 7, 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not remain hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is perfect. It is good. It is powerful. It cuts us. And even stories like this one that have some difficulties, they reveal great things about you and your plan. They reveal great things about your son. And they reveal great things about your gospel. Help us to understand. Help us to enjoy your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Well, did any part of that story make you uncomfortable? Did it strike a nerve anywhere? Did it subvert your expectations? Did you feel a certain tension in the passage? Uh, There is a happy ending in the passage, but there's some weird things that go on. Did Jesus just call that woman a dog? What do we do with that response? Was it right or wrong for Jesus to say that? Well, some have recently said that this is an example of racism in the Bible. Or others have said that this is an example of this woman and she is just rebuking Jesus and this is a good story for us to know that sometimes people speak truth into power, even a divine power. But those are, those are wrong and foolish takes on this passage. But we still have to do something with the text. Do we try and explain it away? Do we pretend like this story in Mark never happened? Or do we we say, maybe that's not original, and we take out our felt-tip marker, and we just say anything that makes me uncomfortable, I'm just going to blot it out? Do we desperately try to resolve the tension? Or do we recognize a masterful storytelling when we see it? Do we let the tension of this passage do its job? Brothers, sisters, let the text cut you. 
Because this passage is about unexpected people in unexpected places. It's about unexpected faith in unexpected places. But most of all, it's about this. Any who humble themselves before the Lord and ask for his mercy will receive it. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Ask for his mercy and you will receive it. And so we'll walk through this passage first by setting the stage and then examining each piece of dialogue. So let's set the stage. While the high point of this story is the dialogue between the woman and Jesus, like any good story, we need to pay attention to the scene. Verse 24 begins with a scene change, and it's quite a dramatic one. Look with me. And from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus leaves the Sea of Galilee, and he he heads north. And we should ask, what is Jesus leaving? Well, previously in Mark 6, or Mark 7, Jesus has been putting up with, as one writer puts it, too much excitement among the people, too much bitterness among the Pharisees, too much suspicion from Herod Antipas, and just too much dullness from his disciples. So he's heading north. He's leaving a context where people, they're, they're just seeking miracles for the sake of miracles. And the Pharisees are overextending their legalism into every facet and situation in the disciples and in Jesus' life. And so Jesus teaches one last lesson before he departs. He says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out. It's what's in your heart and in your mind. Evil is from within. And I'd like you to keep that lesson in mind for a little bit later. But so here we are, and Jesus, he heads north to Tyre and Sidon, and this is a very unusual situation because Jesus is entering a Gentile part of the world. And the text tells us that he enters a house and he wants no one to know about it. Well, why would Jesus want to remain hidden here? It's likely that he's simply seeking rest. In Mark chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, Jesus says that they're going to head off and they're going to rest for a while. He's been at it. He's been doing a lot. Yet his plans, they're foiled by his followers. So then they cross the Sea of Galilee, but even there, the villages, their people pour out and they approach Jesus and bring their sick to him. There is no rest for Jesus. So heading north to a Gentile region, that's a good plan for rest. Except that there's this woman who has heard of him, and she immediately came and found him. Matthew Henry writes that, Though candles may be put under a basket, the sun cannot. Christ was too well known to be hidden for long. And we should ask one more question, which is, How does she know about him? Why does she know in these Gentile regions who this Jesus is? Well, Luke tells us at the Sermon on the Plain, those from Tyre and Sidon were there. Jesus' works and his words are known even in the Gentile lands. And so what happens next is incredibly important. We're about to hear some details in this story that should be very familiar to you, especially if you've been reading Mark. Jesus is in a house. 
and he's approached by a woman who has concern for another. When Jesus is in a home, people often approach him. And they often approach him and they're concerned about somebody else. Maybe it's some friends climbing on top of the roof, digging a hole and lowering a pallet down. We've seen a story like this before. Or maybe we see that this woman is crying out on behalf of her daughter. This has happened before in Mark. Jairus comes to Jesus on behalf of his daughter. She's talked about in the same way. They're probably the same age, 12 years old. And so we've seen this before. And then we learn that this daughter, what does she have? She has a demon. Well, Jesus has dealt with demons before. And finally, she falls down at his feet and she implores him. And we know in Mark of one other daughter who after reaching out and touching the hem of his garment and being healed, she laid at his feet. Everything in this story is a repeat of things that have happened earlier in Mark. But when everything is similar, we have to pay attention to that which is different. In the classic film, The Wizard of Oz, it begins as any other movie of the era does. It's in black and white. There's not a single bit of color on that canvas. Yet after a close encounter with a tornado, our protagonist Dorothy and the audience watching the film look up to see, for one of the first times in cinema's history, a movie in color. It's from black and white to popping polychromatic technicolor. And it's not done just as an experiment in cinematography. It's done to tell us something very, very important. Dorothy and Toto are not in Kansas anymore. And the presence of this woman, the identification of her as a Syrophoenician Gentile, that should pop and jump off the pages of our Bible. Jesus, he isn't in Kansas anymore. He's somewhere different. A Gentile is unclean. Jesus shouldn't be there with her. She shouldn't be there with him. He shouldn't be in a Gentile land. Forbidding, it's forbidden to associate with Gentiles. In John 10, we're told that the, the Jewish people wouldn't even go into a governmental residence for fear of being defiled before the Sabbath. Well, we know how Jesus normally responds to friends, to daughters, to demons, to begging for mercy. But how will Jesus respond to a Gentile woman in a Gentile land? Will he treat her like the unclean of Israel? Like the sick of Israel? Like the broken of Israel? The tension is high. And you might think it couldn't get any higher. But let's see what Jesus says to her. Well, his response, if you noticed, adds a little bit of tension because we're accustomed to these gentle words from Jesus, yet here, without any seeming nuance or clarification, he tells her that what he has is first for the children and not for the dogs. And we'll interact with a statement about dogs in a moment, but look at verse 27, and don't miss that key word. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. It's first. And I think what we're seeing here is a real redemptive move in history. It's like the promise to Abraham. God's going to bless Abraham, but he's going to be a blessing to who? 
to the nations. It's the movement through the Old Testament narratives, through the prophets as we just read in Isaiah. It's the movement of some of our favorite characters in the Old Testament. Think of Rahab. Think of Ruth. Two Gentile women who are brought into the kingdom. And Jesus, in Mark, has already shown a bit of this redemptive movement away from Israel. In chapter 6, Jesus stood in his hometown. And he was rejected like the prophets of old. And what was his response? He and his disciples, they went outward. They began going outward from the hometown of rejection. This movement in a microcosm has already begun, but it's not time yet for that full movement. But knowing that tension, that the gospel is going to eventually come out to the Gentiles, that amps up the tension of our passage. If Jesus knows that one day the Gentiles are going to receive the gospel, that the gospel is going to go out and go beyond national Israel, if he knows that, and surely he does, why does he call her a dog? And I want to bring a few considerations that might clarify this for us. First, this woman has approached Jesus in a heathen country asking for a miracle. In Matthew, his parallel telling of the story, we learn that she calls him, she says, Son of David. Why would she do that? Why would she call him Son of David? Alfred Edersheim suggests this tells us something about her. She's appealing to the name of a king that neither she nor her people have been under. But maybe she knows that that's a title used for Jesus. Maybe she says, hey, this is what he needs to hear. I want Jesus to help me. I'm going to call him and say what he wants to hear. And so Jesus' response is ensuring that he is not seen by these Gentiles as a mere conjurer of cheap tricks. Right? He's showing her. He left Galilee for that exact reason. They just wanted miracles and signs. Therefore, he must teach her in a way that she will understand the relationship between her and the Jewish world, the relationship between the heathen world and the Jewish world. And so the suggestion is that Jesus will help her daughter, but she must first learn who he is and what his plan is. Jesus demands she understands. And I believe of all the efforts to interact with these words, this one seems the most agreeable. It's not Jesus kind of winking and nudging her in the arm, you know, like, oh, you dog. Or it's not Jesus, you know, testing her in an obscure fashion that she doesn't understand. And it's also not what we might do today where we anachronistically say, oh, well, you know, that's a pet dog. So uh, dogs are cute. We take pictures of them, put them on Instagram. We like dogs. This is actually a compliment in disguise. Rather, Jesus is teaching a pagan woman a hard lesson that exposes her faith and demonstrates her understanding that he is not simply a miracle worker. But that it doesn't really remove the tension, does it? And that's fine. We can't explain away the tension. In fact, I argue we shouldn't explain away the tension. Because this is a moment, as I said earlier, where we need to let the text just cut us to the core. Where we should consider why these alert words might leave a funny taste in our mouths. And I think if it does leave a funny taste, it's because we make a critical error. We think 
that we get this situation better than Jesus. We say Jesus doesn't understand the, the socioeconomic, cultural, political landscape at the time. He doesn't get it as much as, he, as we do. This leaves a funny taste because maybe he's misunderstanding. Or maybe we assume, for whatever reason, that this woman doesn't deserve to hear this comparison. So let me ask a point-blank question. Does it frustrate you that Jesus calls this woman's pagan, God-hating culture dogs? Let me ask you this also. Would you have the same vitriol if he called those Pharisees a brood of vipers? If he said they're whitewashed tombs? If he said, I'm, I don't know you, I will not know you. Do we get frustrated when he calls Peter Satan? Do we get frustrated when he looks to the rich young ruler and he turns him away? And the question is, why are we upset when he accurately and appropriately addresses someone's condition? Why do we get so much pleasure when he really turns it in on the Pharisees? But then if we read a story like this, we say, well, it's a, it's a woman and her daughter. Like, don't, don't do that. Maybe there's a better, well, not better, but maybe there's a practical example we can kind of think about. Imagine you're in a waiting room at a hospital, and you look across the aisle from you, and you see uh, a woman and her daughter, and she's about 12 years old. And the mom looks panicked. They've been there for a long time. There's maybe an injury. There's blood. They've been there long enough where the blood is flaking off their clothes, and certainly your heart would go out for them. It ought to go out for them. You ought to look at them and say, oh, Lord have mercy. Somebody please call their name. But do you do that for every person in the waiting room? Do you do that for the, the businessman who looks quite wealthy, who's sitting a few seats down from her? Do you care about his backstory? Or what about when you walked in? Maybe there was somebody who reeked of alcohol, who had a broken arm. Clearly it was his fault. I'm going to sit away over here. Not, I don't want to look at him. And then he gets called almost immediately, and you get frustrated as your minutes turn to hours, and your name is not called. Part of our culture's problem with a passage like this is we want our preferences in his word, right? We want to put my preference into God's word. And I don't think it's chivalry that makes me want Jesus to treat her differently. I think it's because I want Jesus to behave the way that I want him to. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus did it our way, we'd be in deep, deep trouble. He has no partiality. The Son of God came to save sinners with truth and with love. And we will soon see love here. But first, this woman needed to hear the truth. As do you. As do I. Is this passage difficult? I think so. Is it difficult because he calls her a dog? It does make it difficult. But is it difficult because it's supposed to cut you? Or is it difficult because now we realize that we can't put Jesus in that box on the shelf where he fits my preconceived notions of how the Savior of the universe ought to do things? Had I been there? Well, what's this woman's response? Well, I think it tells us that she understood Jesus' statement quite well. And she didn't recoil in the same way that we might. Look at verse 28. We'll read it. She answered him, Yes, Lord. She calls him Lord. She didn't hear his words and respond with disrespect. 
In fact, she takes this brilliant moment and she uses it to her advantage. She says, look at this illustration. I'm going to take it one step further. So I have three children. And do you know what children's chief export is? It's crumbs. We eat ice cream at my house, and you know what's on the floor somehow miraculously? Crumbs of bread. It's unbelievable. It's a guarantee that if you've got kids, you've got crumbs. Vacuum cleaners, they can rest their whole business model on this. You've got kids, you've got crumbs, and guess what this woman has? She's got a daughter. She knows about crumbs. So she takes Jesus' comparison one step further, and instead of being offended, she makes it her advantage. And we don't know what she's heard about Jesus. But we do know that recently he's fed 5,000 with five fish and two loaves of bread. Excuse me, five loaves of bread and two fish. And so maybe she knows about Jesus. Maybe she knows that with Jesus, a little bit of bread can go a very long way. So she's happy with crumbs if they come from him. And she's happy with crumbs if it means that the Gentile can eat at the same time as the Jew. And she's happy with crumbs and will humble herself and take that name of dog if it means that the demon will leave her daughter. I asked you to keep the lesson that Jesus taught the Pharisees in mind, that it isn't what goes into the man's mouth, but what proceeds from him that defiles him. Before Jesus left, the Pharisees were concerned that he and his disciples were eating without washing their hands first. Yet here is this woman. She's unclean because of nationality and religion. She's already laid down in the dirt at the feet of Jesus, and she's continually calling out to him, and she's happy to be called a dog if it means she can have some bread broken by those dirty hands. Isn't the contrast with the Pharisees razor sharp? Bitterness and poison were most on the tongues of those who demanded cleanliness. But here in Tyre, it's the dogs that produce the sweet honey of faith in Jesus Christ. It's easy to think that the most educated and the most experienced that those who belong to the correct denomination, that those who have the best accord with tradition will be the best and soundest sources of wisdom and truth. But here's this Gentile. And after hearing one unsavory comparison, she seems to grasp the reality of Scripture beyond all the experts. And I think it's the same today. Those who understand God's word best are those who are humbled by it and humbled before it. She didn't grasp it because she was educated. She grasped it because she was desperate. She understood because she must understand. So study the word, yes. But don't mistake studying for hearing and understanding. And I'd wager that the one who understands Jesus' words best in any situation is not necessarily the expert in parsing verbs and performing detailed studies, though they might know how to do that. The one who understands his words best is the widow with a child who cannot live without his word. Can you live without his word? 
Well, Jesus hears what she says. And because of this, the daughter is delivered. And if you want confirmation that the woman got it, well, look at verse 30. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Mark doesn't describe her as being unsure and saying, well, can you, you know, come with me. Um, She just goes. She goes home, and the demon is gone. Jesus is satisfied with her answer, and at a distance, he delivers the demon, and she gets it, and she leaves. And again, contrasting previous stories, her faith from an untouchable is wonderful. It's great faith from one who would humble herself before him. And we get a glimpse of what we read in Isaiah. And we get a glimpse of what's showing up at Pentecost. We get a glimpse that one day the mystery of the gospel will come and it will wipe away those lines between Jew and Gentile. We get a glimpse of Pentecost where the Spirit pours out so that all from all nations can be drawn and gathered in to the King of Kings. We get a glimpse of that reality because what do we see here? She confessed her willingness to eat at the floor And Jesus' response demonstrates that she's going to be seated at the table. Edersheim again writes, She was no longer under the table, but she sat down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and was a partaker of the children's bread. Jesus was no longer just a Jewish Messiah, but he was truly now her king, the son of David. She can call him king. And at the end of time, I believe she'll be reclining with Jesus. She saw that broken bread is effective. And when the true bread, Christ our King, was broken, I think that benefit was applied to her. The tension is finally resolved, at least for the woman. But what about you? She came because his magnetism that transcends nationalities. She came because he had life and an answer. And before this statement about the dogs, she had already laid on the ground in humility. And she humbled herself even further down just to be at his feet. And she recognized that it's a good thing to be a dog if you get to be in the master's house. Who cares about my cultural identity? And do you and I see Jesus that way? The gospel is for the nations. But Jesus is not the savior of America as an idea. He's not the savior of Russia as an idea or the French as an idea or Muslims as an idea. He's the savior of sinners in reality. We come to him because of sin. So our culture, our background, our education, our hobbies, our political hobby horses, these are not the basis upon which we approach the throne. We approach because of sin because of fallenness. And if you catch wind of Jesus, you run to him. You immediately run to him if you hear his voice. If you recognize that your life is torn apart, that the things you love are being snatched from you, you run to him. You leave those things behind. You leave everything behind because when the king of kings is in your neighborhood, you fall at his feet, you immediately go to him and you tell him you need him. Brothers and sisters, the word was read here today. His name has been proclaimed. Jesus is, no matter who you are or where you're from, the Savior that you need. And the smallest crumb is the bread of life. The bread that is his body, the smallest morsel 
will satisfy. And your whole identity can be wiped away. Yes, he called the pagans dogs. But he makes it crystal clear that those dogs will be invited to the table when it matters most. And the story comes at the tail end of Jesus' ministry as he's about to approach the cross. And that cross is where he'll die so that those dogs can be united to him. They can join his church, which Christ calls his bride. Jesus died on the cross so that the dog can be his bride. These are dark moments for people in Mark. At your darkest moment, is this how you appeal? What does it look like when you come to your wit's end? Do you turn to the government? Do you turn to your worldly rulers? Do you stand on your own two feet and maybe you do approach Jesus, but you stand tall and proud and you say, I kind of need your help, but I can do it myself? Do you flex in the mirror and say, I don't need anyone? Or do you throw yourself at his feet and avail yourself to him? Do you reach out to touch just the hem of his garment? You should. You must. And there's a beautiful truth. Christ has never put any from him that fell at his feet. He's a beautiful, wonderful Savior. So maybe you're asking yourself, what now? Well, it's quite a simple answer. We have a beautiful, wonderful Savior. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Ask for mercy. And he will give it, no matter where you're from. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you brought the gospel to Gentiles. As Eric mentioned earlier, there are undoubtedly most of us would not have the gospel if the message did not go beyond Israel. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing that your gospel proceeds to the nations. Help us to recognize how beautiful that picture is, but help us also to recognize the beautiful example. Make us humble so that we can bow at your feet so that we might one day sit at your table. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.